Welcome to episode number 48 of the Dust Safety Science Podcast, where we're creating a global community around process safety and industries handling combustible dust. I'm your host, Dr. Chris Cloney. Today's episode, we're talking about the fundamentals of dust explosion prevention, protection, and avoiding accident sequences. I'm actually preparing for a workshop that I'm giving down in Northern Kentucky on the fundamentals of combustible dust. I realized as I go through the podcast episodes that we've done to date, I'm pulling in information to put into that presentation that we we haven't actually had an episode just going through the the clear overview of the fundamentals of prevention, protection, and avoiding accident sequences. So I thought I'd put that together. So in this episode, we're going to start with some important concepts around explosion safety, around fire safety, and flash fire safety. Um, then we'll actually go through some example prevention strategies, example protection strategies, and how to avoid accident sequences and escalations of a primary event into secondary and larger scale kind of disastrous and catastrophic losses. So moving right into the material then, there's a, three important concepts I want to introduce before we get into the actual prevention, protection, and accident sequences. The first of those is the actual terms prevention and protection. So I think of this in terms of prevention versus mitigation. So prevention, in, in my view, and the definitions vary a bit on this, is stopping an incident or an incident sequence from occurring prior to its incipient stages. So mitigation, then, is the kind of other side of this coin. This is protecting workers, equipment, the environment, or other assets from an incident or incident sequences after the incipient stage has already started. So where the, the definition gets a little gray is what is the incipient stage of a, of a dust explosion or a dust flash fire or even a fire. And in this case, I think of it as a flame kernel. So the flame kernel started to develop. It reaches sort of a critical size or a critical mass um, that's able to self-propagate. That would be after the, the incipient stage. Anything that happens really before that that's able to stop that from starting in the first place would be, uh, would be a prevention concept. So I think it's stopping the flame kernel from developing would be where prevention starts. So then the second important concept is around this term incident sequences. So very often this is, is documented as being primary versus secondary events or primary versus secondary incidents. In the case of a primary deflagration or primary explosion, this is the first ignition of a dispersed dust cloud in the incident sequence. So this is very often inside of process machinery, process equipment. Not always, but in most cases, the original explosion occurs when all five sides of the Pentagon are present. And this most often happens inside of machinery. So this primary explosion is very often then inside of processing equipment, where the secondary deflagration is the subsequent steps in the incident sequence. These are initiated by the primary step. And very often, this is actually flash fires and explosions outside of process equipment. Again, not always. You can have a case where you have an explosion in, uh, say, a cyclone. This propagates through the ductwork into a dust collector or into other process machinery. And this is actually also a very dangerous circumstance due to things like pressure piling. We'll discuss that a bit in this episode as well. But I just want to highlight that. So incident sequences, primary incidents versus secondary incidents. And this is really falls along the lines of avoiding these incident sequences and avoiding escalation of an incident as it moves along from one piece of machinery to the next or one area of the facility to the next. So then the third important concept I want to go through is explosion design parameters. And these are the parameters you determine from explosion testing, either in the 20 Lear chamber or in the one cubic meter chamber. The deflagration parameters are maximum pressure, Pmax, and maximum rate of pressurized, DPDT max. Uh, so the maximum pressure indicates the, you know, the strength of an explosion in terms of rupturing a vessel that's contained in. 
and then a maximum rate of pressurize, how fast does that material react? Is it fast enough to actually have a flash fire and explosion hazard? So you determine this from standardized testing, and these are your kind of deflagration parameters to determine if you have a combustible dust. There are other design parameters. Um, some of you are familiar with probably KST, which is scaled maximum rate of pressurized. So this is a way to take rates of pressurized from different sized vessels and scale these up to a common denominator, which happens to be the one cubic meter chamber in our case. And this is used for designing of different parts of your prevention and, and more likely your protection strategy. There are four other parameters, the MEC, the LOC, the MIE, and the MIT, that are all really focused on prevention. So this is your minimum explosible concentration, MEC. This is the minimum amount of dust required to be able to sustain flame propagation in that dust cloud. The LOC is a limiting oxygen concentration. So likewise, this is the amount of oxidant required in that cloud to actually sustain combustion and explosion. The MIE is the minimum ignition energy. So this is the minimum energy required to ignite a dust cloud. So this could be in terms of spark energy or other type of high energy releases. Are they able to actually ignite a cloud of that material? Then the MIT is the minimum ignition temperature. So this could be a hot bearing, this could be a hot surface, a hot motor surface, something that's heating up and submerged in the dust cloud. And is that hot enough to actually ignite it and cause an explosion? So those are the three important concepts then, prevention versus mitigation, incident sequences, primary versus secondary, and explo explosion design parameters from testing. So these really give us the kind of fundamental building blocks in order to understand prevention protection, and avoiding incident sequences. So then to actually get into the incident, the prevention and protection measures, it's helpful to align the, the five elements of a dust explosion. So this is something we covered a lot in the podcast before, which is very typically referred to as the dust explosion pentagon. It's our logo for dust safety science with a sugar molecule in it for the imperial sugar refinery explosion. What it indicates is that there's five requirements for a dust explosion. To have a fuel, this is your combustible dust. Have an oxidant, this is typically oxygen in air have an ignition source competent or able to actually ignite those materials when they are dispersed as a cloud, um, dispersion of that material into the air. Otherwise, you just have a fire on the ground as the dust would settle due to gravity. As you disperse that up into the air, you can have a flash fire. And if you have confinement around that fireball, that's what leads to pressure rise and can lead to rupture of vessel, fragging of local materials, and facility destruction or structural collapse that could cause an issue for workers as well. So those are the five elements of a dust explosion pentagon. They're very commonly referred to as the fire triangle is your fuel, your oxygen, and your ignition source. The flash fire square is adding dispersion in. It's sometimes called the deflagration diamond as well. And then the explosion is when you add the fifth element in, so it's confinement piece. In terms of definitions, the term deflagration is used for both flash fires and explosions. This really means the fireball. Deflagration is defined by NFPA 652 as something along the lines of a reaction front moving in an unreactive medium at a speed lower than the speed of sound. Um, so this is the case if you have a dispersed dust cloud, the fireball the, is the interface, that's the reaction zone, it's propagating through the cloud, um, but not as fast as speed of sound, that's a deflagration. So it's really the fireball, the reaction front, that's this deflagration. It can cause a flash fire if that's unconfined, and if that is confined, it can cause an explosion, which is generally defined as rupture of the vessel. So in the next couple of sections, we're going to talk about prevention options, protection options, and we're going to go into this avoiding its in sequences. So examples of explosion prevention options generally come from removing one side of the dust explosion pentagon. And actually, it's generally removing one side of the fire triangle 
that most of the techniques use. So the first option is actually to remove the combustible dust. Can you go without having combustible dust in your facility? Is this a byproduct that you don't need? Is this an intermediate product that you don't need to store? If you can actually remove this completely from the facility, then you don't have a dust explosion hazard. This is a prevention technique, and it's actually inherently safer than any other prevention technique because you no longer have the fuel there. So it's always a good option to ask that question. A lot of cases, maybe we can't remove it, but if we can, that's a, a you know a much safer way. Do we need a storage silo to store that inter- intermediate material? Can we improve our material delivery systems or the, the flow-through rates of our raw products to avoid having to store that material in the first place? That'd be an inherently safer prevention option than actually having the material on site and trying to do other options. If this isn't an option, then number two is preventing the dust explosion by concentration reduction. So again, here we're focused on the fuel part of the dust explosion pentagon, but we're trying to keep the concentration below the minimum explosible concentration, below the MEC. So this can be done through regular cleaning of machinery and equipment, correct equipment design, so don't have dust accumulating in ducting and inside equipment. Take a close look at what the material flow-through rates are so you don't have buildup. Operating equipment at the correct speeds. So you can have a case where maybe a screw conveyor, if you operate too fast, you can get combustible dust dispersed into the airspace on the top half of the screw that's in that's above the MEC. But if you operate at a lower speed, maybe you don't have that dust building up. So those are your two options. Remove the dust for prevention. Remove the dust and prevention by concentration reduction. Option number three is prevention by oxidizer reduction. So in this case, you are actually inerting the atmosphere to bring the oxygen level down below the limiting oxygen concentration. So this requires a closed system, and you're injecting a inert gas, something like nitrogen, into that closed system, into your processing loop, which can bring the oxygen levels in the whole loop down. For both the prevention by concentration reduction and prevention by oxidizer reduction, you're removing one of the elements of the explosion pentagon, and it's important to note that you're actually removing it below the MEC and the LEC plus some margin. And those margins are specified in how that's treated specified the NFPA documentation. If you're continuously monitoring the levels, they let you use a, a smaller margin than if you're not continuously monitoring those levels, then you need to have a bigger safety factor. The next options for explosion prevention all fall around the ignition part of the fire triangle and the ignition part of the dust explosion pentagon. First of these is spark detection and control. So this is an active system where you need to sense for uh, ignition a possible ignition source, a competent ignition source. So this could be a hot screw, could be a smoldering pile, it could be you know a hot ember that's sucked into a, a dust collection system. Anything that's giving off heat radiation that could ignite a dust cloud or a dust explosion needs to be sensed as it comes through the system. This can be done through radiation or temperature, sometimes smoke, monitoring, and then it needs to activate some control method. So this could be an abort gate that shunts that hot ember out of the processing line, or this could be a suppression system that quenches it before it can get downstream and start the incipient stages of a flash fire or the incipient stages of an explosion, actually. Option number five here is another ignition control method is proper hot work systems. So you don't want to be doing hot work. You don't want to be doing welding and cutting on tanks or hoppers that have combustible dust in them. There's been lots of cases of this causing severe injury and and fatalities. Um, there's actually one that I remember from a few weeks ago where a worker was welding over top of a hopper and the hot ember off his welding rod fell in, dispersed the dust up, caused ignition, and caused a flash fire at the top of the hopper and burned the worker. So it can be dangerous and you should not be doing any sort of hot work activities with combustible dust around. You clean up the material 
empty it out of the, the equipment that you're working on before starting hot work. Then option number six, and this is the last in the examples of explosion prevention options, is to avoid self-ignition. So this can happen in silos where you have smoldering combustion deep inside the silo. This makes it to the surface that can become flaming combustion. This can, for example, ignite a dust explosion in the headspace or even a gas explosion in the headspace. You can also have things like self-ignition inside of different pieces of equipment. So if you have a spray dryer and material gets stuck to the uh, edge of that spray dryer on the inside, that can actually heat up and start to smolder, start to react, and start to, it can be an ignition source for a, a dust explosion. So there's ways to monitor for that type of scenario where you can do gas measuring. And if you're actually picking up more combustible gases, things like carbon monoxide from combustion of smoldering material in the silo, then you can determine that there's there's material stuck to the side that's starting to self-ignite. A note here, you can see this as an example. I guess the question is, what do you do when you get something stuck to the side of a spray dryer? What you, you shouldn't do is walk over with a big stick and hit the side of the spray dryer to knock it off. That's pretty dangerous. It can ignite a dust explosion in the spray dryer. And I've heard stories of people walking into facilities and you look at the spray dryer and it's got big dents in the side and you ask what that is. And that's how they, you know, that's their system for removing self-ignition. That's pretty dangerous. There are safer ways to do that. So and those are your six example options of explosion prevention. Remove the combustible dust completely. This elimination, it's one of the elements of inherent safety. Prevention by concentration reduction. Prevention by oxidizer reduction. Spark detection and control proper hot work systems, and avoiding self-ignition of the dust. All of these can stop a deflagration hazard before it reaches its incipient stages. So then moving on to protection options. Protection is, again, after the incipient stages have started, how do we go about protecting workers or the equipment or the environment from an incident or incident sequence that's occurring? So this generally has two options. There's, there's a couple different ones, but the major ones involve two components. One is around the containment element of the dust explosion pentagon or the confinement element. The other is around actually suppressing that flame kernel before it grows to a point that it can self-propagate and uh, lead to an explosion. So the first option is to actually increase the confinement. So build the vessel that the dust explosion may happen in to containment. So this has to be strong to withstand somewhere between six and bar overpressure from the dust explosion. This happens in, say, hammer mills. They may be designed and specced to withstand a dust explosion inside of them. It's not as common for large pieces of equipment, although there are some new design methods that are allowing that to happen, but it can also happen for different components. There's examples of explosion-proof drum kits that can be applied at the bottom of a dust collector to avoid having to have a, an isolation channel between them because the, the kit, the disloading or the unloading hopper is strong enough to withstand an explosion should it propagate into that piece of equipment or that complementary piece of equipment. The second option is, well, actually there's a whole family of options around removing confinement. So in this case, now you're sensing pressure rise in the piece of equipment and using a vent panel to open and release that uh, pressure. So in this case, we're removing now confinement from the dust explosion pentagon. When I say sensing, you're not actually actively sensing. It's a passive. So it's a passive approach. The explosion vent is designed to open at a set pressure. And then when the, the explosion happens, when it hits that set pressure, then it, it opens just from the, the passive design of that piece of equipment. And the pressure is expelled into the surrounding area. So a couple of points here for traditional venting. 
um, actually for all venting, but especially in traditional venting, location is very important. You don't want to vent towards a area where workers are going to be or a picnic table or a parking lot or a catwalk or anything where there's going to potentially be a person. You don't want to vent towards that. If you're outdoors, the, the piece of equipment's outdoors, that's a lot easier. You have a lot more options. If it's indoors, you may need to duck that to an outside wall. And also you need to do some regular maintenance and inspection on these vents. They shouldn't be painted over. They shouldn't be bolted. They shouldn't be so close to a wall that the, the pressure can escape. This is actually quite dangerous as well because the whole, say if it's a dust collector and the vent's only a foot from a, a wall, then that will actually push the dust collector and maybe make it fall over if an explosion happens. So there's a lot of things to think about about siting and location areas that you need to vent to if you're doing trad traditional venting. Another option here, and this is option number three, is flameless venting. So in this case, you are doing the same thing where you are removing confinement, but there's actually a mesh that quenches that flame and stops it from ejecting out of the, the vent panel. It kind of diverts the flame and quenches at the same time. So this gives you a couple more options than traditional venting and can be placed inside closer to where workers are. You shouldn't have it directly pointing at workers because uh, you may still have a pressure wave that comes out there, but you have less issues with fireballs ejecting from that explosion vent. The last option we'll cover for explosion protection is suppression systems. So in this case now, you're actively monitoring for an explosion starting. So it started as incipient stages and you want to capture that before it escalates to an explosion. So in this case, generally a pressure sensor would be used and this is used to activate a control system. So this control system could be a suppression system that suppresses the flame kernel, or it could be a system that inerts the atmosphere that the flame kernel is developing in so that it can't propagate anymore. And the whole, the, the big point here is that these can be used on more systems that are more versatile because you don't need to worry about where you're, you're venting the overpressure to, uh, but there's also more moving parts. It's an active system. You need a sensor, has uh, potentially more failure points, and you need to account for that in your, your explosion protection design. So those are a bunch of options around the fundamentals of explosion prevention, explosion protection, and how those relate to removing different elements of the dust explosion pentagon, how they relate to stopping or preventing explosion before it's in stipient stages, and then protecting workers, the equipment, and the environment after explosion passes its incipient stages. So I want to close out this episode by talking about two more scenarios or two more kind of technical approaches. And these are around avoiding incident sequences and escalation. This is where we see a lot of incidents turn from a single piece of equipment to maybe destruction of a whole facility. So the first one I want to talk about is isolation. So through the NFPA standards, equipment must be isolated from other equipment and equipment must be isolated from workers. So we'll go into these individually. In terms of equipment being isolated from other equipment, if you have an explosion in one piece of equipment and it propagates through the ductwork into a second piece, the problem is that the first explosion pre-pressurizes the second vessel. So as the flames propagating, as a fireball is moving through the ductwork, it's actually pre-pressurizing that second vessel. And when the explosion then gets into the second vessel, it's much, much stronger. And by much, much stronger, I mean the flame may be propagating at a rate that's five to 10 times faster than the initial explosion. So if you design your system to explosions that would happen at ambient conditions and you have this pre-pressurization, this, this pressure piling effect, it's not going to be designed appropriately. It's not going to be able to withstand the force of the explosion in the second vessel. So this is why it's really important to isolate the explosion so it can't propagate from one vessel to another. 
to another and have these worsening scenarios where each one's a, a worse explosion than the first one. The second case of this is that the equipment must be isolated from workers. So you can't have an explosion if in a dust collector that's outdoors propagate back through the ductwork to workers that are indoors or through, say, a return airline to workers that are indoors or down into the output of the dust collector and go further downstream to maybe where people are, are involved as well. So this is all about isolating the piece of equipment if an explosion happens in it from the, the different worker areas. So that's the first key point, and it's a, a very important point around avoiding incident sequences, that's isolation. The second key point is to avoid fugitive dust accumulations. So to do this, we, we usually talk about the three C's, contain, capture, and clean. So contain is all focused around designing equipment such that dust doesn't get released while it's being operated. So make sure that your ducts are airtight, make sure you don't have leaking material coming out of them, make sure that your equipment isn't processing in a way that's causing ideally any dust to be released, but beyond that, maybe an excessive dust level to be released. A piece of equipment where you can't do this, so maybe a screen or a saw or some other piece of the process line, then you want to look at collection. So you want to have proper dust collection from a hood that goes back into a dust collector so that you can capture that material. And the real key here is that it ends up in the dust collector that's properly uh, has proper prevention and proper protection on it and doesn't end up in the rest of the facility. Any material that can't be contained or collected then needs to be cleaned. And this is through a, an effective housekeeping schedule that keeps the dust below the minimum explosible levels. And the different NFPA commodity-specific and industry-specific guidelines give um, thicknesses for this, but they usually range on the order of, say, half a millimeter to a couple of millimeters in thickness would be the, the maximum allowable. So you need to make sure your host cleaving efforts keep the dust below this. And this is really important. A lot of cases, Imperial Sugar had, you know, the large secondary explosions lasted for 15 minutes because of the amount of fugitive sugar dust that was available throughout that facility. You can actually, if you go to that report, and we'll put a, a link to it in the show notes at dustsafetyscience.com slash 48, they have a picture from slow, closed circuit cameras of the nearby of a nearby business. They show a giant flash fire, a giant fireball erupting from the building 15 minutes after the initial explosion. They had a bunch of explosions leading up through those 15 minutes, but the last one was after 15 minutes. And the flame, the fireball, is higher than the silos. Silos, I believe, are 105 feet. The flame looks like it might be 150 feet or 170 feet. So if you have this fugitive dust accumulations. And that can lead to this incident sequence where you have a primary explosion in a piece of equipment. This gets outside of the equipment and then starts to ignite secondary, tertiary, and later explosions, not to mention fires that make evacuation difficult in the facility. So isolation and avoiding fugitive dust accumulations are hugely important to avoiding an incident sequence and escalation of that dust explosion. So that's it for this episode. It's a little bit of a quick one. Just talking about the fundamentals of dust explosion prevention, protection, and avoiding accident sequences. Again, we covered all these elements before on the podcast, but never in one space. So I just want to give them their own home so I can point people back to it. Uh, we talked about different important concepts around these uh, different types of engineering approaches. We talked about prevention versus protection. We talked about incident sequences, difference between primary and secondary explosions. We talked about different de- testing parameters, looking at deflagration parameters and then engineering design parameters. We talked about example prevention methods, how to stop an incident or incident sequence before its incipient stages. We talked about available protection methods, how to protect assets, workers, and equipment, and the environment after explosion gets past its incipient stages. Then we talked about really important concepts around isolation and avoiding fugitive dust accumulation. 
So there's a big question here. Where, where should we start then by going through this? And a great place to start is really to focus on the incident sequences and in particular, the fugitive dust accumulations. If you get this right, then you may be able to at least have a, a single fire, single explosion, not escalate to a, you know, a catastrophic or a disaster level scenario. So that's a really good and important place to start. Get your fugitive dust cleaned up. Do that safely. Um, isolation is really important as well. And then thinking through your options for prevention and protection, try pick things that are maybe more passive than active, but really need to figure out what system will fit in with your existing facility design. And a big component of this is around doing a dust hazard analysis. Uh, as we've mentioned on the podcast before, this is going to be a requirement moving into September 7th, 2020, as per NFPA 652. And this will be a, a key driver in outlining your specific facility, the hazard mitigation methods that are in place, place already, the recommended ways to move forward. So that's it for this episode of the podcast. As always, you can get the show notes at dustsafetyscience.com slash 48. If you have any questions of things you'd like to hear on the podcast, we're starting to get those in. Or actually, we've been getting them in for quite a long time and tackling them along the way. We're getting more, you know, every every week when we release these show notes. Go to dustsafetyscience.com slash ask, A-S-K. You ask the question there, we'll bring somebody on to talk about it. So as always, I want to say thank you for listening to the Dust Safety Science Podcast. We have some really exciting things coming up with the Dust Safety Science Platform um, some things that we're, we're kind of just coming and mentioning publicly probably right around the time this episode's live. So I'm not going to say them yet, but we will lead into there's some big things coming. And maybe next week's episode, we'll talk about that a little bit. So I say thank you again for listening. I hope you have a, a safe and productive week ahead. I appreciate the work you do in industries around the world and in industries handling combustible dust, making them safer every day. 